Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, where we've got a great program for you tonight. A little bit of a last-minute program, but it's one that uh, I think will be fascinating for everybody joining in. It's great to see some people here in the uh, chat already. It's great to see some people watching already so hello hello and welcome uh, and uh, a reminder to get your questions in because we'll be having several question and answer stops as we go through all right we've really got two major uh, items to discuss tonight one of them kind of centers around design one of them centers around fossils and if you look down at uh, glenn right now or just about now you'll see that he might even have a slippery slimy friend that he'll be introducing us to a little bit later um because uh, we are dealing with the topic of worms and more specifically what do you need to make a worm which is a program that i heard john do many many years ago and it's always stuck with me since uh, it's a great program about design and how you know whether something's designed or not, how you can recognize whether something's designed or not. Uh, but the other thing we're going to be looking at is, well, it's got something to do with this fossil that I have here. Um, this is a rather interesting bone fossil of a dinosaur. And we're going to be talking about, well, types of fossilization comes into it. But more importantly, uh, some of the discussions about what fossilization means and how quickly can fossils actually form. And there's a reason why we're going to be talking about that tonight, which is very specific, but we'll get John and Craig to explain that as we go forward. For now, we have the full team with us again this evening. We've got John, we've got Diane, we've got Glenn, we've got Craig, and we've got Sam as well. So hello, everybody. How are we all doing? John, you're back. Yes, and front and... Uh... Feeling pretty good and only hoping my chili soup that I had for early breakfast doesn't sort of um, react and you can't smell anything out there. So that's good. But it's interesting how Glenn introduced as Glenn with worms. That's a, a novel introduction there. Um, yes, I'm back and well and appreciating that. And it's uh, really good to be back on the show again. And I'll do a ministry report in a little while, but up and at it at the moment and very busy with our new museum. Great stuff. And Glenn, I know that you were... Uh, uh, here as well. You haven't joined us um, a couple of times, but it's good to see good to see you back, and I, yeah. it's good to have some friends along as well. Yes, I'll bring out the friend later. <laughs> but how yes. are you doing? How are you doing, Glenn? <clears throat> I've been sick all week, but I'm here. It's good. It's good to have you. It's good to have you. I, but I shared my sickness with all the members of our family. So of course, <laughs> they're all sick now. <laughs> Sharing care, <laughs> hey? Um, <laughs> Diane, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Yes, it's getting very chilly here in Canberra. and uh, oh, It's quite the opposite here today in the UK. I have yeah, to yes, say. So, I, so I gather. Yes, the seasons are changing. Good stuff, good stuff. Craig, yeah. how are you doing? Yeah, good morning, everyone. It's um, yeah, great down here. It's cold as well, but... Um, sort of expect it starting to come in at this time of year although it's a bit early but no we're all we're all good down here been busy we'll share a bit of that shortly indeed yes yeah yeah it'll be good to uh good to dive in to see what everybody's been doing over the last week or so but sam how are you 
I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, nice to be off work again for a nice bank holiday weekend. Um, but okay. yeah, I'm I'm here and I'm I'm ready to save all your questions for the Q and A section. Indeed. So make sure you do get those questions in because we will be, as I said, having a few different question and answer uh, sessions as we go forward because we're dealing with a couple of rather interesting topics, but uh, great stuff. Well, um, let me just uh, start by doing a very brief ministry report because I've been uh, all over and it's pretty pretty hectic the last uh, couple of weeks, but then that's nothing out of the ordinary. We've been all over. Uh, we've been on trips down south. We've got some great fossils. We've done some great ministry. It's been rather wonderful, but it's all been building up to two big things. Uh, one of them, or well, they actually both have to do with the United States, um, because I will be traveling to the United States on the 2nd of June, and I will be meeting up with Glenn Wilson shortly afterwards because we're going to be kickstarting the ministry back in the USA again. Yes, it's come on very quick. Yes, it's a bit of a last minute decision, but uh, you have to understand that we weren't able to come to the United States until about a week ago uh, or so when they announced that all COVID restrictions were being ended. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, creation research is coming back. We're going to be kickstarting the ministry. Glenn is the person to get in touch with if you want to. Uh, uh, if you want to uh, organize the ministry, we'll put some contact details and uh, some more information about that up in just a moment. But everything's been building up over the last couple of weeks to organizing all of this. We've got some great uh, programs that you can come and listen uh, and see me in person. We're going to do some field trips and some quarry digs. We're going to do all sorts of fabulous stuff. We're going to meet up with our good friend David Reeves and do some filming. So it's mostly been about building up into that. But we're going to take a brief break from all the organizing because tomorrow we will be leading this, our first ever tights and mites field trip. Um, where do we go? Well, we actually start here in the Creation Research Center. We have a look at some stalactites and stalagmites in our collection. You can see I've got the, the giant stalactite with me next to it in the front there. Um, we look at the stalactite machine. We look at some fabulous examples. And then we head just down the road into Chirk. Because if you have a look on our YouTube channel, you'll see that I took John to Chirk a couple of years back, the last time he was here in the UK. And uh, we saw some fabulous stalactites. And then we go a little bit further into Wales, where you can see on the uh, front cover, the sort of background is a wonderful set of old mines, Victorian mines, which are full of stalactites and stalagmites as well. Now, if you can come and make it on the field trip, there's still spaces, so book online, it's on our website. But if you can't make it to the field trip, you can find out about all of the field trip locations as well as some of the things we're going to discuss tonight about fossilization in our fabulous books, Tides, Mites and Fossil Fights, um, which I'm sure is not the only time we're going to mention this this evening, because the question of calcification, calcium carbonate, and also petrification is going to come up again. So tides, mites, and fossil vides is a really good place to start. But Cray, um, uh, Glenn, I'm going to come over to you next for your uh, ministry report, which I know has to do with me coming to the States as well. Uh, so over to you while I pull up a couple of uh, graphics as well. Yeah, so looking forward to you coming, starting to put together a schedule for you. I know we've got one week that's really packed with a lot of events, and that sounds exciting. But there's plenty of openings, plenty of time for you to do some, some other things. The other thing I've been working on, and I'm really looking forward to getting your help with as well, Joseph, is that, uh, you know, I've mentioned this trailer that we've bought. And uh, mm -hmm. 
been able this past week we've got shelves in and today we actually moved the fossils into there but my wife wants to get her room back that we had them all stored in is basically the the biggest motivation but uh, also been working on displays and putting some together and it's interesting that uh, we're going to talk about design because one of the displays i've been working on i don't know if you can see this but Joseph, do you know what that is? Uh, I think um, it would probably be called something like a Lyplurodon uh, or something. It's uh, it, it looks like one of the big the big sea dragons, Mosasaur. Yes, they, they, they actually, I think they call it a Mosasaur. And, Mosasaur, yeah. Yes. Um, so it's a Lego set. Well, mm -hmm. you can imagine it took a lot of design to put together that Lego set. Mm. And a very smart person told me as I put this place together that I ought to get a Lego set and put it together and then have another Lego set next to it where all the pieces are just sitting there. And, uh, you know, what's the probability of those pieces coming together and making that Mosasaur? Um, very slim. It took a lot of design and then it takes a maker. Well, for me, I'll just admit I didn't put this together. That's beyond my capabilities. I got my grandchildren to do it. So that's what they've been working on this week. They've had a ball putting it together. Great now, stuff. Like I said, it's beyond my capability. Now I've got to put the displays together. I've got that all worked out and got some cases to put them in. So. Mm. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to going through some of the fossils and stuff with you. I've seen John's fossil collections in Tennessee many times, and he's got some yes, spectacular sir. stuff there. So it'll be good to dive through that all and get some cataloging going on. And even using some of our new technology, eh, Sam? 3D yeah. scanning and all of that. 3D what? scanning is the way of the future. So one of the things that I have is a cast of ant channels. And it's an actual ant channels casted. And that's one that we need to do a 3D scan on and recreate. Now it'll be good. It'll be really good. Diane, briefly from you, because I know we've got a newsletter coming out. Do you want to just let people know about that coming up? And I know you're going to be talking about some of the bits later. But just let people know how they can sign up to the newsletter as well. Yes, we have uh, an email newsletter ready. We didn't send it out this week for various administrative reasons. Uh, so there is time to sign up for the uh, email newsletter, which is free. You just need to go mm -hmm. to our main website and uh, click on the page that says newsletters and si sign up there. And uh, if you do or you're already on the mailing list, you can look forward to some interesting things about Welsh fossils. And we'll answer the question, uh, can frogs be pollinators? And we'll even uh, have a bit about uh, poisonous birds. Uh, so interesting things to uh, look forward to. If you are um, looking for previous newsletters, we archive all of our uh, individual science reports on our fact file. So you can go back and look at 20 years worth of uh, yeah. sending out uh, newsletters with uh, interesting bits from the scientific news there. They're archived as individual items. You don't need to know when the newsletter was sent out. You can just do a keyword search, uh, and uh, that's a useful resource. So check out the uh, fact file, that's called. 
Fact file, creation fact file. Great stuff. Yes. Thanks for that, Diane. Um, Craig, over to you. I know you've been uh, out and about and doing some rather interesting things. So over to you for, I think you've got a, a little PowerPoint to uh, tell mm. us about. Yeah, I'm going to test you out on a couple of things here, Joe. Fabulous. Uh, John's already had a bit of a, a lead in on it, but um, I'll test mm. your, your fossil knowledge out as well. Yeah, fantastic. So we went up to Bronte Park, which is in the central part of Tasmania. Uh, I know it might sound to some of our regular chatsters that uh, I've got quite the life getting out and about, um, <laughs> going looking at uh, fossils and going field trips, but I've got a lot of catching up to do with you geologists on, on fossils and, and knowledge of the geology. So I'm trying to put a bit of that in, but it's also a good opportunity to get some of our, our supporters out as well and um get them interested and 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 increase their knowledge and yeah um supportive of the whole show um that's the general setting of where we're at um but this is another reason that we go out as well is we're trying to build this picture of marine fossil sites across tasmania and that that's a, a up-to-date picture of what we've found so far so that's only sites that we've been to and or that we've had confirmed um, because they're very well known sites. Um, so yeah, we're gonna fill a lot of those gaps in over time and we'll show very powerfully that Tasmania has been completely covered in water and all of it's been catastrophic by the way. Um, this is the site we went to in the Central Highlands here. So it's another little spot we've added uh, after this week uh, up there at Bronte Park. So we headed up from the north there and down into the mountains and we were held up a little bit on the way there's a bunch of uh, sheep so our new zealanders will understand that but um some other parts of the world might not but uh, that's actually is a highway but it's only a really a gravel road that goes across the highlands called the marlborough highway um yeah so this is where we pulled up and started looking for the fossils uh, beautiful sheep country it's also um Tasmania's highlands are a very wet area. This is part of the hydroelectricity scheme uh, up there. Some big pipe work channeling the water through to the power stations. Uh, lots of dams and, and waterways up there. So here's a couple of supporters that came. Scott, it's only his second trip, but he actually um, found some of our best fossils there on the, on the day. And Derek, some of our regular viewers will recognise. He's been on many of our, our trips and He's our coordinator for our volunteers at the museum. So he does a great job. Actually want to get Derek's testimony one day. He became a Christian as a result of creation ministry. Okay, there you go, Joe, Glenn, nice. any clues what this could be? You see the concentric mm. circles there? That's a slab and a counter slab. Yes. Well, you've definitely got um, you've definitely got bryozoans up on the top right-hand corner of the slab, yes. the counter slab, um, and then you've got these rather interesting circular things. I'll give you a couple more uh, slides on it. Yeah. Mm, okay. That's, that changes things, but doesn't make it any clearer. <laughs> one more okay there's the clamshell yeah definitely yeah. clamshell and there's what's that bit in the middle there it's almost stromatolytic john but not quite 
or plate coral. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd go I'd go corally type thing. You've definitely got you've got your clamshells, you've got your bryozoans, and you've got well, yeah, one of the big flat flat coral things. A bit like what you get in um in Wales actually, up near yes. um, the Orm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's quite big. Well I'll I'll reveal what I think it is. I think it could be what's called a tabulate coral. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got an inserted clamshell there. Um yeah, but but that's only really from having a look around on the internet, and I know they do yeah. occur in Tasmania in the fossil record as well. So yeah, uh, really good find. Definitely some kind of coral there. It's nice to have several things together. Um, and those little um, uh, upright strands there are very very fragile, so they were falling apart as we opened it up. But um, uh, yeah, no good find by Scott, our mm. our new fossil hunter. Good stuff. Um, Here's a couple of the other oh, fossils we found. Nice. Very some, nice. Some quite mm. nice ones. Yeah, came out of the ground. The triangular one like that. So yeah, <laughs> mostly mostly brachiopods. So that's a um, an infill. So the original shelly material has gone, and that's sort of the inner cast. But yes. really nice. Yeah, really nice. So they'll, they'll probably go on display in the museum. Um, so, yeah, we had a great day up there. Um, these are the cliffs I showed, but uh, inside one of these cliffs was a bit of a cave and there's a nest there. There's another test for you. What do you think that could be a nest of? Really testing you out today. Hmm. Well, big, I'll tell you. Big, big you well, there's a couple of potentials. It could be a Tasmanian devil. Um, they do, do have nests, but they don't tend to like higher sort of settings like that. They'd rather a bit more of a den. Um, a, a tiger quoll can as well. But it's actually, and I, I was able to check with uh, an expert ecologist from the Forest Practices Authority who um, confirmed that it was indeed a wombat nest. Um, oh. Uh, yeah, so they don't just live in burrows necessarily. They will build nests, and it was very fresh. I think we probably oh. scared the wombat away mm. from it mm. as we approached. So that's what we've been doing during the week. Um, mm -hmm. Jobs at the museum, um, and that's that's it for my dis. dis great stuff, oh, brilliant. Great stuff. Great and stuff. No, really good find there. Just to add a couple of points that you and I talked about. Did you notice people the nice curved on the shell that was in the deposit the clam type shell now if you go to the beach you'll get a, a clue to figure out which is top and which is bottom if you're looking at shell beds because if you have shells washing into the beach every time the wave washes in all the shells that are inside out you know facing up will flip over and go like that it's due to aerodynamics same as an airplane wing so always that curved side is up, right? It, it, there are very few exceptions to that, but that curved side is up. And the reason for the question is Craig said we found it with the bed, the bed bit there actually facing like that. And then I'm thinking about that, Craig, the whole of the coral beds that are there, you should use them to determine whether things were washed into place or whether they grew there, because if the coral's been washed into place, there will be various corals that are tipped up uh, rather than just all being horizontal. And that uh, indicator will be that shell as to which way up is. So if it's facing out that way, then there was up when the shell was laid down. But in reality, that would have been up. 
so the beds that little portion has been tipped over so folks who are listening you can always figure out a little bit of the history just from the angles of the shells and things like that because well evolution is false shells have always behaved the same way uh, they produce their own kind so that curve is a built-in aerodynamic feature it helps the shell when it's in the sea in the in the in the uh, water etc helps the pectins swim as they glide through the water with airplane wings uh, all sorts of interesting things come out of that apart from just the angle of the beds but certainly a wonderful uh, week a wonderful couple of days craig yeah yeah, well yeah a couple of great finds really good stuff really good stuff fantastic right brilliant um great stuff john i think it's over to you now for ministry report yes, which okay um we'll show my little show and tell first uh, because later today we'll be going to our museum and putting this out now we have incredible museum coming up uh, it was going to be opening on the 16th 17th and 18th of june but due to my vacation and hospital which we'll talk a bit about later it's been postponed because we couldn't get the newsletter out for a few weeks late etc so this will be going over there this afternoon and the museum opening for those of you who are in southeast queensland has been shifted to our next available date and that is sort of the 29th 30th 31st of july so if you want to come to our creation discovery center here in queensland and you want to see some of our fabulous dinosaur fossils um, unlike many museums we most of what you'll see on the day will be real but sometimes we have a cast of thousands this is a cast right but what most people don't know is that most museums you go to all you ever get to see are the fiberglass or the plaster cast so we do our best to tell you and to give you ways to actually recognize this of course if you haven't figured out what it is it's obviously a horn off one of the ceratopsis you know off its nose something like that a really really uh, excellent specimen there as we discuss dinosaurs but even when you're in hospital uh, I, I get bored I, i'm not a very good patient right that scripture that says add faith to your patience i need to add patience to my faith sometime um basically what 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 i get bored with is just lying around so i I design things and we work out things with the artists. So if you want to bring up my first PowerPoint section there, Joe, I'd be grateful. Are we on? There we are. Good. There you go. Okay. So there's our old uh, logo. Uh, and we basically just put a few things together. Why aren't I showing up here, Joe? You'll need to uh, click on your PowerPoint, John. Click on the PowerPoint. Okay. That's good. All right. That's still not going. You need to go down down to the bottom, John, and click on your actual PowerPoint icon and then onto your full screen presentation. Okay. PowerPoint icon. I hope we're doing this right because having a week away in hospital is terrible. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. Can't do it at all. I've, underneath, I've got a, a plus, add source, no, none of those things. No, no, it's, not, it's none of those, John. Right down at the bottom of your screen, you've got to go to the, the orange PowerPoint icon, click on that, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then click on your full screen presentation. Okay. Uh, I've done the orange one. There we are. That's better. That's good. All right. So uh, we've had quite a few um, murals etc on dinosaurs there's one of our most popular ones you know if, if we made that available as a t-shirt 
Remember the scripture, there were giants in the land in those days just before Noah's flood? Well, we've made one of the giants equal a dinosaur. And the, particularly the high school boys love that, uh, that, that uh, mural. Um, we've got several artists. Uh, here's another one with dinosaurs. And that's our, um, our, our dino ducky. We've got bird footprints in the dinosaur uh, beds in Australia alongside of dinosaurs. So forget all this thing about dinosaurs evolving into birds. They were there at the same time. And, of course, we've got flood fossils, uh, which is what a lot of the museum will be about. But there's the actual field trip. That was done by Anne Squires. So thank you, Anne in England, of Joseph and I. And I think that's her husband from a field trip a, a few years back. And we're looking for dinosaur bones on the uh, forefront there of the Jurassic Coast. Fabulous stuff. There's another one of our most popular ones where we've got Guanlong Wookie. That's the dinosaur that's got five colours in its crest. And uh, it's definitely a flood-based dinosaur because we actually have the cast of the fossil there on display for the students to touch. But what have we been doing? Spending a week in hospital talking to our artist, Steve Cardner. Well, I said, Steve, we boarded up some of the windows in the building. You'll see we're setting up a new display there with dinosaur fossils at the bottom. We boarded up the uh, windows because we're going to put new murals on that section. So here's the first up, because we'll be showing dinosaurs that are drowned. To give you a close-up, dinosaur fossils are often found in a particular death pose, with their head and neck thrown backwards and tail arched over their back. Now, we've mentioned this quite a few times, and every one of those pictures there, yes, I've been to all of those places. Yes, you'll find that, uh, like even the one in Bavaria, I went there and I photographed. I photographed the Alberta, the Canada, etc. You see, we made it a business in creation research to actually do the research, not just borrow the pictures out of uh, cartoon books or anything. And notice what new scientists went on record as saying quite a few years ago now regarding the death pose. One of the world's foremost evolutionary scientific magazines reported immersion in water is the simplest explanation. Now, if you want to bring me back on screen, Joe, um, that would be great. Let's see if I can get myself out of screen. All right, so here we are. Windows click key and then click on your browser, John. I've done that well. Look at that. Memories come back after all. Um, remember that the reason they said they were drowned is that when you look at the animals with the long neck and tail, when they are in water and they're drowning, the last thing they do is throw up their neck and they go to try and breathe air, but all they did is, is water down and their tail reacts in sympathy with it. And only if they're buried really quickly will the head and tail be preserved in that position. So uh, a great lot of new murals coming up for our museum, but again, a commercial. Those of you in southeast Queensland, uh, some of you are booked. Well, we will be cancelling your bookings and shifting them to July the 29th, 30th and 31st. So that's what's happening out here. Um, we'll look forward to seeing you there. Back to you, Joe. Great stuff. Thank you very much, John. All right. I think, we do, we think we're doing it at the same time. You, you just click it, Joe. No, sorry. I think we're clicking at the same time. You just do it. There you go. There you are. That's better. Good stuff. Let's turn that off. All right. Great. So I think that's... Um, 
most of our ministry reports that we've gone round and uh, and spoken on. So it's time to move into our um, main subject for this evening, which is really going to be twofold. We're obviously talking about design and we're talking about what do you need to make a worm, but we're also going to be looking at the question of fossilization and things like that. But to uh, begin with, I think we're going to be going over back to John actually um, to talk a little bit about design and health and have a bit of backwards and forwards in with Diane before we have our first uh, break. Okay, thank you Craig and Joe. Now the reason for this section is that quite a a while ago, Craig contacted me with a book that had just been released by a Baptist pastor out here, arguing a very common theme that you can't take Genesis literally. And uh, Craig said, you're mentioned in this book, and uh, let me read this out to you, because the author has real trouble with the age of the earth. And therefore, he accepts what the experts say, quote unquote, experts, and, and makes the world very old and tries to argue backwards. Now, rather than taking my short summary of it, I've asked Craig today if he'll bring in the book and tell us about this book, and that he's currently doing a pretty good review, but he got a bit annoyed with me last week just because I'd been in hospital for eight days and couldn't do the answer, and Joe's tied up with his doctorate. No, sorry, Craig, I'm not trying to denigrate you. Craig said, you haven't done the, the question that I asked, on all of those per mineralized or mineralized fossils or petrification. So Craig, would you read out the relevant section, please? Because so many Christians uh, are troubled by this. Yeah, right, John. Uh, so this is right in the sort of introductory uh, first few pages of the book. So it's sort of part of the foundational reasons that uh, this author has uh, had problems with young earth creation and so on. So I'll just read this paragraph. It says, my father, concerned that I might be developing theologically liberal tendencies, began to forward me his copies of creation ex nilio. Now, this did not help at all. Sometimes in their enthusiasm to support young earth theories, they made analogies that plainly didn't fit. In one example, I recall the magazine used the phenomenon of calcification to prove that petrification could happen in a brief time span. Even with my limited knowledge of geology, I knew these are quite different phenomena. So, so that's probably enough there, but um, I knew immediately when it's referring to the editor uh, of Creation Ex Nilio that uh, that was likely to be you, John, so. It was, because I invented the name Creation and uh, and uh, was the first editor of that as a magazine and did my best to turn it into a Reader's Digest format. You know, one page, one article, plenty of pictures, and it was a real success in that format. And he's quite right. We did have the hat from the museum in Tasmania. We had a few other illustrations, rather well-known uh, amongst uh, the creation circles as examples of materials that have been per-mineralized or per-penetrated uh, or coated by calcium carbonate often, sometimes other minerals, and they are often argued as evidence that here's how quickly things can become mineralized. Now, what's interesting is I knew Don, I went to college with Don, and the sad thing is not once has he com communicated with me and asked me anything about this. When he brought out his book, uh, no, he'd, 
he didn't send a copy to, to Craig, even though Craig knew him, and he hasn't asked for any feedback from us. So, Don McClellan, what you're about to get is feedback from us, as gentle and as nice as we can, but uh, with a few little wrist slaps here, there, and everywhere. So, basically, uh, what I've done is I've got a few pictures first to actually show you some of the things we've noticed that are odd. Is per mineralization, say with stalactites, is it an exception? Is it a rule? Is it related to fossilization? So I'm going to ask Joe to come in on this because Joe, you're doing your doctorate, you're doing a geology degree. Now, is there a technical difference between per mineralization and fossilization? Or can we use the word fossil in all of this? Or does it just grade from one end to the other? Take it away, Joe. Thanks. And Sam, if I can leave you to go up to full screen and everything, because I've got a whole host of fossil examples here uh, to talk about this, because it's something which there is a lot of misnomer about when we're dealing with a term like fossil, because to the average layperson, the term fossil means turned to stone. It's a creature or an organism from the past that's turned to stone. Um, and actually, the word fossil doesn't mean that at all. The word fossil itself simply means to be dug up or to be found in a hole, right? And to dig something up, you need to dig a hole. So it's got nothing to do with a technical definition as to what has actually gone on to preserve this creature. It just means you've dug it up. And indeed, in the past, um, pretty much anything that you dug up was regarded as a fossil, whether it was a rock, whether it was a human skeleton, whether it was an old bit of pottery, or whether it was a creature from the past preserved in the stone. A better definition of fossil, but it's still not a completely technical definition, uh, but a better definition of fossil rather than turned to stone would be preserved in stone or preserved from the past. But then you have to realize when you go and you dig up these mammoth fossils, right, from the permafrost, well, they're not really buried in stone. They're buried in permafrost, which is partially frozen mud, right? Or mud that is frozen for part of the year. So very little has gone on in terms of the preservation, other than the fact that they're kept at very, very cold temperatures. And uh, some of the sediment, the mud that it's buried in, has kind of stained the bone. And some of the minerals have gone into the bone. But pretty much, it's in the same kind of state as when it was in the mammoth, right? It's just been preserved in the cold permafrost in the cold mud. So really, fossil should not be used as a technical definition. It's fine to use it as a layman's, but then you start getting confused by all the different more technical definitions, right? Things like petrification, things like permineralization, carbonization, calcification, so on and so forth. These, all these Asians, right, can be very, very confusing. So what I've got is I've got a few examples of different fossils here. We can talk through some of these definitions. But more importantly, we need to get on to the calcification. Is that a type of permineralization? Is it a type of petrification? What are we actually dealing with here? And are there any examples of modern day calcified, petrified, permineralized things which could be regarded as fossils? Um, for every intent of the word. Well, let's dig into that a little bit now. Because as I said, the first thing that a lot of people assume when they're dealing with a fossil is turned to stone. Now, that is what the word petrified means, turned to stone, right? And we have examples of petrification uh, here in the museum. Here's one of them. This is a great big slab of um, fossil wood. It's petrified wood. This is actually from the UK. And you can see there, if I hold it up to the camera, hopefully it comes into focus. Can you see all the crystals there? Uh, now, this is actually a type of 
calcium carbonate. In fact, it is a type of calcification because this is from a place called Portland uh, in the UK, the Isle of Portland. And the Isle of Portland is famous because of its Portland limestone. And a main component in limestone is calcium carbonate, right? Calcification. And so it's the same base material that you find in the stalactites. It's the same base material that you find in chalk. It's the same thing that you've got in limestone. And this is wood that has been preserved in limestone because the Portland limestone has been used all over the world, including perhaps most famously uh, in most of Christopher Wren's uh, projects, which uh, he did things like St. Paul's Cathedral and so on and so forth in London, right? Um, and you can see you've got all these. Let's see if we can get it back up to the camera again. All of these beautiful crystals in here. Um, there we go. And so yeah. it's a form. Uh, can I interrupt here a moment? Um, basically, there are enormous number of trees that are almost, you'd say, petrified with calcium carbonate. Yeah. The wood is still there in many cases. And if any of you want to see it, in our Darwin on the rocks, where we went around the world, I deliberately went to a port um, location in Nova Scotia. And my colleague and I, we went and we tested the, the logs because they're on record in in some of the world's leading literature, almost ignored by the average person and unknown by so-called experts because the logs are just like the ones uh, at your area there. They are calcite all the way through, calcium carbonate, same as what was permineralizing that miners have, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have it on the outside or you can have it around it and going inside. But the fact is it grades from one end where you just call it mineralization and dismiss it if you're an evolutionist to realizing this this grades all the way through to the whole log totally being penetrated until it reacts with with hydrochloric acid back mm -hmm. to you joe and that's really where we start to get a little bit uh deeper into the technical term so calcification means preserved in calcite preserved in calcium carbonate well that is true of this piece of petrified wood but it's not the case in this piece of petrified wood this is one i picked up from my friend jim just the other day uh, he had a few of these examples and uh, it doesn't look like very much like a dirty old rock right but if you have a look at the top end can you see the bluey green coloration you see this is actually wood that's been preserved not in calcite or calcium carbonate this has actually been preserved in malachite malachite is a mineral which contains copper it's the ore that you extract copper out of we'll be seeing malachite and copper in our tights and mites field trip tomorrow because the mine that we go down is actually a copper mine um exciting stuff so this is petrified wood for sure and this is petrified wood for sure but they have been preserved using different minerals they're both petrified they're both fossilized they're both turned to stone but they've been turned to stone using different types of stone this has been preserved using calcium carbonate it is calcified this has been preserved petrified using malachite it's a different type of mineral for the same process and that's the key thing different minerals preserve things in different ways different minerals can preserve things in different ways using the same process but these are both petrified the true form of being turned to stone 
Now, if we have a look very quickly at a few other examples of fossils, because, like I said, not all fossils mean turned to stone. In fact, in some cases, the original creature isn't there at all. Take, for instance, this rock here. Um, it's an old lump of rock, right? But get a hammer, give it a good smash, break it open, and look what you've got inside. It's a little trilobite. Now, what we have here are the little trilobites that are preserved in mud. Now, very little, if any, of the original trilobite is actually here. This is a cast of a trilobite. The original trilobite has gone, it's been destroyed, it's been infilled, the little cavity, and you're left with a cast of the trilobite, and you're left with a mold that the trilobite has left behind. So you've got a cast, and a mold fossil. Very little of the original creature is actually there, but it's a preserved likeness of that creature. It's the same with this ammonite here. There's none of the original creature left at all. It's just been infilled, that, that, that mold that it's left behind has been infilled with a mineral, and you've got this beautiful cast of a creature that once was. Okay, and sometimes actually with these, you do still actually have the shell preserved because uh, in that case, the shell, which is already hard, is still there and it's been infilled. So you've got the shell and then you've got a cast inside. Now, when you're dealing with something like a tooth, hey, this is one of those fabulous T-Rex teeth, right? A cast of the largest T-Rex tooth ever found. But you find that, well, you've got this nice shiny bit on the top. Well, teeth are already rock. They're already made out of minerals. In fact, calcium carbonate is one of the main minerals in bone and teeth. And so really, you don't need to do an awful lot to preserve it. You don't need to turn it to stone. It's stone already. The only thing you really needed to do is to preserve this root, which is why you often find teeth with just their shiny bit on the top and very little of the root, because you don't really need to do much to turn it into a fossil. It's pretty much a fossil already. Now, there's one other type of fossil which we'll talk about. Um, before we move on to the main type of fossil in this discussion of carbonization, uh, sorry, calcification and petrification, um, have a look at this rather fabulous. Well, this is actually a British fossil. It's a British fossil of what is now an Australian plant. It's one of those fabulous cycad fossils from Yorkshire, the Jurassic Coast. Now, what's happened here is a process called carbonization, which is a type of chemical preservation. The actual plant, which is full of carbon, has changed its chemical form slightly, and you've ended up with a flattened, carbonized plant squashed in between the layers. And in fact, John will tell you that sometimes you can actually take the little film and just peel it up. It's the whole leaf still there. It's just been squashed and carbonized. So that's a case where it's changed its chemical structure slightly. It's not been calcified, it's not been really petrified, but it's certainly been preserved in its stone. So let's move on then to one of the more common types of fossils, particularly when it comes to bone, and it's the concept of permineralization, which is often poo-pooed by evolutionists because you hold up, you know, your petrified teddy bears and they say they're not fossils, they're just partially permineralized. Well, before we get into fossil teddy bears and fossil paper roses and fossil bird nests in play from places like uh, Matlock Kent in Derbyshire, let's actually talk about bones for a minute. Um, and let's start with the all classic dinosaur bone. You see, like I said earlier, um, a lot of people have this misnomer that fossilization means turn to stone. 
And it can mean that, but it does not exclusively mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean that in the case of these dinosaur bones, because it's the process that's going on here. And the process is permineralization. Now, depending on the type of mineral you use, you could call it calcification, or you could call it pyrotization, which now has got nothing to do with pirates sailing on the high seas. It's to do with iron pyrite, right? Uh, which is a metal form, uh, uh, metal and sulfur, iron and sulfur, which can often preserve these bones. But I just want to hold this. This is a big iguanodon bone, right? You know, the big uh, dinosaur. This is from the Isle of Wight in the UK. It's one of the bones we're using to do tests on to look for things like soft tissue. But let me hold it up and let's see if the camera can get into focus for a moment. Uh, let's slowly bring it back and forwards until it's in focus. There we go. Let's get it up even closer hey can you start to see some of the detail now now what you're looking at is some black stuff and you're looking at some white stuff now the black stuff is the actual bone it's the very same bone that was inside the dinosaur the white stuff are minerals minerals that have impregnated the bone and preserved it but don't be surprised what was the process called here per mineralization break it down literally means permeated with minerals. Now, bone is extremely porous, as Diane Eager will tell you. Uh, being a medical biologist, she knows these things. And even the bone that we often view as porous, you know, your honeycomb structure, well, that's certainly porous, but even the really, really thick, dense bone, the uh, outer skin edge bone, is also very porous indeed, just with tiny microscopic pores. And when you bury this creature in the right conditions, when you bury the bone in the right conditions in the right sediment using the right process, you can actually end up with all the minerals fully impregnating the bone. So the black stuff is the original bone. The white stuff is the mineral that has actually gone into the bone and preserved it. White stuff, mineral, yeah, we're dealing with calcite here. Calcite, calcification. Yeah, it's a form of fossilization. In fact, specifically, it's called permineralization, and the type of mineral that it uses depends the name that you call it. So this is a form of calcification, permineralization in dinosaur bones. In fact, if you want to go one step further, have a look at this great big Allosaurus bone uh, from the United States. You can get it up nice and close. Let's even get into focus. Hey, look at those crystals. Huge, great big calcite crystals in the center of this enormous dinosaur bone. Now, the process is permineralization. The mineral is calcite or calcium carbonate. And so you've got calcified, permineralized dinosaur bone for sure. Now, these are real fossils. These are real fossil examples, bone examples. Joe, Joe can I just interrupt here a okay. moment? Because in preparing for this, I scoured the web yesterday uh, looking for, you know, questions like calcification, permineralization, etc. And the tragic result is that probably nine out of 10 sites said permineralization has nothing to do with fossilization. There is no calcified fossils at all, always silica. It's now, ignorance. I'm not it's ignorance. A layman like a pastor would go for that, right? And, and think, therefore, they have to believe it. Can I encourage all you pastors out there, the expert is God, his word is your authority, start there. And if it contradicts with what the scientist says, then double check the scientist, right? Because what you're watching here is a straight out rebuttal um, 
that no debater would survive, right? So that if this was a debate against a professor, he would be wiping all over the floor and blood spreading everywhere at the moment. Metaphorically speaking here. Metaphorically metaphorically, that's right, yes. (laughs) Calcifying dust all over the place. But you need to deal with the facts. And one thing we set creation research up for many years ago was to collect the facts and to show you that this actually does happen. So when you see a calcite crystal in the middle of a dinosaur bone and all the little white spots around react to hydrochloric acid, then I'm sorry, but eight out of 10, nine out of 10 experts are simply wrong and they're ignorant and they're perpetuating the ignorance, even though they've got PhD authority, they're talking nonsense. And by the way, as I go on to talk about this last bit, which really hones in on this issue of fast and rapid and modern uh, petrification, calcification, permineralization, I just want to make the point that what John has just said is actually quite important, right? This is the reason why we window paints is because when somebody stands up and says, there's no such thing as this, we say, excuse me. Yes, there is. And here it is, right? It's here in my hand. And that's what makes the museum ministry so important. That's why we're going through all the fossils with Glenn. That's why we're opening a museum in uh, in Queensland. That's why we've opened museums in Tasmania in the UK. And this is why your support is so vital because it enables us not just to acquire fossils, but actually to go and dig the things up ourselves. John's been doing it for many more years than me. I've been doing it for a few more years than Craig. Uh, and, uh, you know, Glenn's now come on board with it. But it's so important to make sure that we can get out there and actually collect these finds that we can present them to you when we get criticism like this. So continue to support creation research, continue to fund us because it is so vital. Okay, moving on to the last section here where we're going to be really bringing this into some modern examples and tying in these principles. Let me introduce you to a fossil teddy bear. Oh, that's not my term, by the way. That's the official term used by the place which actually produces these. Or they actually use the term fossil teddy bear or petrified teddy bear. Now, remember what petrified means? Turn to stone. And here is a teddy bear that has, well, for all intents and purposes, it's turned to stone. But is it exactly petrification? Is that the process that's going on here? Because remember what petrification is? Turn to stone just like this wood has. Um, There's very little of the original wood left, although you do sometimes find, as John mentioned, in the middle, uh, some of the fresh wood where it hasn't completely uh, destroyed it and turned it to stone. But that's beside the point. Here we have our little petrified teddy bear. What's the process going on here? Well, it's actually permineralization. How do we know? It's simple. Teddy bears are full of stuff and fluff. They're soft and squidgy. They're very, very porous. So what happens is Mother Shipton's, which you can see the official uh, gift box here where we got it, Mother Shipton's, which is in Yorkshire, um, a gift from the magical petrifying well. Well, well, it's actually more of a, uh, well, well just means a, a place for water, right? It doesn't actually necessarily mean drop it down into the ground. And what's going on at the natural petrifying well at Mother Shipton's is you've got a natural spring which comes out of the ground. What's the ground that it's coming out of? Calcium carbonate, limestone, right? And it runs down the hill and it drips over a ledge down into a little basin below before it runs, carries on down the valley into the river. And what they do is they get their soft squidgy teddy bears and they hang them up underneath this ledge. And the water, which is full of calcium carbonate, 
drips in and soaks into the teddy bear. The minerals permeate the teddy bear. And then the water comes out, leaving some of the minerals behind. And in about two to three months, depending on the weather outside, you end up with a petrified teddy bear? Well, technically permineralized. The minerals have permeated the teddy bear and have preserved it. So what have we done now? Well, we've taken teddy bear and we can compare him with things like oh, the dinosaur bone. What's going on here? Well, the teddy bear's still here. He's still here inside this rock. He's just been permeated with minerals and preserved. Just like the dinosaur bone is still here. It's still here. The very bone that was inside the dinosaur is just been permeated, infilled, and entrapped with minerals. Per-mineralization. Okay, take teddy bear, and we chop teddy bear in half. There we go. And look what's inside teddy bear. Soft tissue, quite literally. Because let's hold it up to the camera. You can actually see if we can come into focus. There we go. You can actually see where some of those minerals have started permeating teddy bear. They've started going into teddy bear. Here's the surface look, uh, just there. Bring it over this way. There's the surface, and it's actually permeated down into teddy bear. But it hasn't had the opportunity, because it's so quick, to actually fully permineralize all the stuff and fluff. So in the center of teddy bear, you are full of soft tissue, quite literally. Now, this is a process. The process is permineralization. The mineral that it's used to permineralize the teddy bear is calcium carbonate. This is calcification. And this is the process that uh, the author of the book there criticizing the old creation magazine and the editor, John Mackay, was saying that, hey, this process of calcification has got nothing to do with fossilization. Really? Well, if you go one step further and go back to our dinosaur bone, realize that the process that preserved this dinosaur bone is not only exactly the same process that preserved this teddy bear, it's even using the same materials, calcium carbonate, which is otherwise known as calcification. Ah, not only are they like for like in terms of process, they're like for like in terms of material used. So it's the same process that's going on here. One calcified, permineralized dinosaur bone, one calcified, permineralized teddy bear. The difference, of course, is that it hasn't fully impregnated all the way in. But that's because it's how quick it's been preserved. But then don't be surprised if you take dinosaur bone and you drill a nice hole right into side of it. Yeah, dinosaur bones are worth a bit more than fossil teddy bears, so we don't like to crack them open completely. But if you drill down inside of it, you can extract, guess what? Soft tissue. Ah, the original biomolecules, the living soft squidgy stuff that's still inside these dinosaur bones. All right, one final step. Are there any examples of modern day permineralization, petrification, calcification that unlike the teddy bear, which hasn't gone all the way to the middle, actually has fully gone all the way, fully permineralized, fully petrified, fully um, calcified it all the way through? Well, yes, there actually is. Let me just pull up just one or two quick slides here, just as a way of introduction before we show you the actual fossil that's going on here. Um, here we are in a place that we've shared many, many times. Um, Sam, if you make sure it's up on the screen for me. Uh, We've shared it many, many times on Creation Conversations, Standing for Truth, many of the talks. Harper Hill in Buxton, which is part of the Peak District area around Derbyshire, pretty much in the middle of the UK. 
And John first came across this deposit many years ago. I visited many, many, many times. I've led many, many, many field trips there. But one of the first times that I started traveling there and looking at it, we were specifically going to start to map and to measure out and to track how much of this white stuff was growing every single year. What is the white stuff? Well, getting a little bit closer and you can see it a bit clearer. Uh, you see the dry stone wall. You see the modern fence posts with the fencing sheets, the fencing uh, uh, wire that's sort of tacked to it. And can you see how all that white stuff is actually coming and overtaking that fence, overtaking the wall, and is actually burying it pretty quickly. The white stuff is calcium carbonate. It's limestone. Um, how do you know? You can test it. Chuck a bit of acid on it. It fluffs and bubbles and fizzes all over the place. Well, there's John Mackay a number of years back when he was in the UK, um, not long after he first discovered this deposit. And there it is. Can you see all the white stuff starting to overtake the fence post? Can you see John pointing out how all this white stuff is cascading down the side of the wall and really beginning to bury it? Um, how long did you say this took to make? Well, you can work it out quite easily because these are modern fence posts. These weren't being produced until about 60 years ago or so, uh, you know, post-Second World War. So this deposit is 60 to 80 years at the absolute most. But notice how it's actually taking over these fence posts. It's certainly burying them. It's completely encasing them with calcium carbonate. It's completely encasing them with this or could you call it petrification? Could you call it, you know, calcification? Could you call it permineralization? Well, we wanted to know. So what we did is we went and actually dug down next to one of these posts. We dug down pretty deep. Can you see it all starting to come in and overtake it? Well, certainly at the top there, you can see the join where it's just covering it up doesn't really seem to be doing much. But dig down three or four feet, and what you'll actually find, particularly if you go, and I think I've got a picture of it here. There we go. Can you see the big deposits and the big fence posts right out in the back? Um, and they're doing some tests on it. And if you actually dig down and go really deep, what you find, and put me up the full screen there, Sam, is something like this. This is actually a sample of that wood. You see it's the fence post there, right, that we took. Um, we actually dug down and dug it out, and we broke it off the top because we wanted to have a look down inside it and right into the middle of it and see just how much has actually been calcified, just how much has actually been petrified. And you're actually able to read all about it in Tides, Mites and Fossil Fights because we did a load of tests on it as well to double check and make sure. You can meet Roman who helped me with this research. But here's the original piece. You can see it's a modern day fence post that we've chopped the top off, we've broken it in half, we've also then split it down the middle. What are we dealing with? Well, let's get it up close to the camera so you can see here. Um, there we are. That looks pretty much in focus now. Can you see how the calcium carbonate has actually not only fully impregnated it, it's completely turned it to stone. This is heavy. This is calcification. This is petrification. And this is a modern fence post. All right, have a look right in the middle of it. Turn it round. Hey, look, same thing. It's not coated. It's actually completely petrified it's completely calcified you can see it in the top there see if we can get it into focus there we go um see the cross section there it's completely preserved it fabulous stuff 
okay, back to the main point in question. Is calcification the same as petrification? And is it the same as fossilization? Is it the same as petrification? Well, these are all different terms that mean really different specific things. And some of them are mean really general things and don't mean anything at all. Like the term fossil just means to be dug up. If you want to talk about specifics, you have to realize that you're talking about processes. And they are processes which describe the way that these things have been preserved. So if you're talking about permineralization, you're talking about minerals that have permeated it. If you're talking about calcification, you're talking about the type of minerals that have permeated it. If you're talking about petrification, you're talking about turning these things to stone. Calcification means the types of minerals that you've used to turn it to stone. Permineralization and calcification means the type of minerals you've used to permeate it. These will mean all different things. But what we've done is show you examples of not only all of them, we've shown you examples of calcification, which is to do with petrification, just like this real world fossil piece of wood. We've spoken about permineralization that uses calcification, just like the teddy bear or like the dinosaur bone. And yes, these are all quick things. Yes, these are all rapid things. And we've even been able to show you real-world petrification using calcites, calcification, petrification in the form of a modern timber beam, which has been completely permineralized all the way through. So yes, be wary of those out there, uh, particularly pastors that get confused about these types of language. It's actually fairly simple when you break it down and understand it, but understand that number one, it's all to do with a process. Number two, it has to be quick. And number three, yeah, there's no evidence whatsoever that these things took vast periods of time, because if they did, you would never get a fossil in the first place, because time is your biggest enemy when it comes to fossilization. It will destroy your organism or creature long before you have a chance to turn it into a fossil. It needs to be quick, it needs to be deep, it needs to be without the presence of oxygen so living things can't get down there and destroy it and it needs to have the right process because fossilization has everything to do with process, nothing to do with time. Doesn't matter whether it's a piece of modern timber fossil wood, doesn't matter whether it's a huge great big southern conifer piece of fossil wood or it doesn't matter if it's a beautiful allosaurus bone with an incredible example of calcification right in the middle there. Yeah, continue to support us so we can bring these real world fossils to you and really show up the error in many people's thinking. John, back to you. Okay, Joe, while I'm talking here briefly, give me the screen, Sam. Joe, will you find your uh, tight smites and fossil fights and open up to the page that we filmed when you went to um, that, that uh, lime deposit that I introduced you to, and also find the page that deals with the trap tights, you know, the insect that mm -hmm. got trapped on our thing. And uh, have you found those yet, mate? Because I'd, I'd like to encourage people, you can see these petrified trees, but petrified in lime in our video or our MP3 or in our download um, section. Um, you can see all of those and they are available. Sam will put the... the uh, addresses up how to find the downloads or whatever uh, on our screen in a moment you can get those and what just go and do that to verify the trees are lime right now this is much more common than most people think even though the webs today uh, you look up the web calcification no nah, no fossilization through calcification it's abject rubbish now we're trying to be nice as nice as possible but i'm looking forward to don mcclellan's reprint which will be one page long that says I was wrong and you should read your Bible 
and believe it to be true. So, Don, we'd encourage you to do that. And uh, have you found those pages yet, Joe? Oh, there's three pages here yet, John, right here. Okay, go back to screen. So this is the, um, let's get it the right way around. There we go. So it's there. There we go. So there's Raymond who I mentioned. Um, and you can see, oh, there it is, there it is there. So you can see, get into focus. There we are down on the field, having excavated the post out. Come on, get into focus. And uh, there's one of the pieces we tested. That picture on the bottom there is the exact same one that I um showed you in a minute ago so you can see we've done the test right in the middle of the through and then brand new break it is definitely calcium carbonate it's definitely calcified all the way through and it happened at an absolute maximum in around you know basically less than 80 years um although we suspect it's a lot lot quicker than that because of course you can get eyewitnesses at this kind of time uh, and go and speak to the locals this is the other thing which i think you wanted to mention earlier john about yeah. the calcium carbonate being sticky this is one of yeah. your um stalactite machine tests and you can actually see there in the bottom picture there i think that's just about in focus you can see how you've actually got these little bugs which have become stuck on the stalactites mm. okay now um, you can pull that off there joe because you need to have the screen back on me sam now one of the things that you need to become familiar with is that the internet is full of lies fabrications and falsehoods about limestone and stalactites being made in machines and bridges, etc., telling you that this is a different sort of um, stalactite than what you find in caves. The first stalactites we found on bridges, we sent to the nearby university to their chemistry lab and said, verify that this is the same as the calcite in, stay, in caves. They sent it back and said it is. Vance Nelson sent his to a university for high-tech dealing with x-ray sort of stuff it is at microscopic level the same as the limestone found in caves the same as the calcite found in caves this is not a different substance but did you notice the insect trapped in there uh, it wasn't there one day it was there the next we didn't watch it hit but obviously was there in the by the morning we got there and it was stuck old meaning of limestone means sticky lime as in the old german limb meaning glue right you might know it but lime plus water makes a really interesting glue you fly onto that and you are stuck if you're a tiny thing like an insect you have trouble getting off and you'll be aggressively coated in a day or so with what well, you can't get out you are stuck trapped in the limestone and you become a fossil, you are buried. You have to be dug back out. And of course, we have famous examples like the bats that are trapped in limestone. I'm sure it flew into that cave, perched up on a, on a stalactite, and next morning it couldn't get its, its claws off. It was stuck. So in reality, there are simple mechanisms. What, what's going on with my light there? Do we have a light coming from somewhere? Yeah, it looks like it's the sun. Oh, the window. oh, sorry, it's a window behind me. Excuse me, folks, it's sunrise out here in Australia. I've done fixed that up. <clears throat> it came through very quickly. I am very jealous of the uh, southern hemisphere sometimes. <laughs> but there we are. But yeah, I think it's just, it really shows 
the importance of being able to go and do real world testing. Um, and we're using examples of this uh, in our Titan Martin fossil fights field trip tomorrow, where we look at some of the results of the stalactite machine and the X-ray diffraction and stuff. These are all real examples that are matched up perfectly with the real world, whether you're dealing with the pH testing, whether you're dealing with the tests like X-ray diffraction, uh, whether you're testing it for calcium carbonate all the way through, it is a true form of fossilization, certainly preservation. So just okay, Joseph, John and Joe, John. I think you've given me enough material to work with. Thanks for that. <laughs> are, are you guys suggesting that truth isn't determined by majority vote? Yeah. Strangely enough, um, yeah, it's something that uh, seems to come up over and over again, this question. I mean, we were discussing it on, I mean, you really shouldn't debate on Facebook chat pages, but somebody was saying about how there are so many christian theologians that believe in evolution surely that means that it's right and i just had to point out christianity is not a democratically elected set of principles it's revealed truth and if it's anything less than revealed truth it becomes completely worthless um and so we really need to make sure that we're not only uh, standing on the truth of god's word we need to understand that truth is actually uh, objective it's not subjective as many people would like to believe your truth and my truth is really irrelevant it's whether it's truth or whether it's right or wrong whether it's truth or falsehoods that's what we really need to be dealing with so this whole debate as john has said many times is not science versus the bible um it's not science versus religion it's truth versus error that's all it is Yep. Uh, one last thing before we give it to Sam for thank yous and questions. Diane, you and I discussed a medical issue here because um, many years ago I was reading of the finding of a, a skeleton in a tomb in, in uh, old Europe there and they reported a fossil baby uh, in the position where the womb would have been and uh, you and I talked about the sort of lime that was involved in there or the lime the bacteria mess around with with your teeth. Would you like to comment on just how similar or how different that sort of lime is, please? Uh, well, it's not actually calci calcium carbonate, but it is a calcium mineral. It's uh, your bones and uh, and your teeth are made of calcium hydroxyapatite, which is a type of calcium phosphate. There's a small amount of calcium carbonate in your teeth. And there are also little uh, lumps of uh, calcium carbonate in your inner ear. So if someone tells you that you have rocks in your head, they are right. They're called otoliths. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yes, it's calcium mineral. Your bones are made of calcium mineral. Uh, so that means your body is capable of setting up the right chemical conditions. And those, there's nothing to do with time. It's to do with the right chemical process, setting up the right chemical conditions for calcium mineral, um, whether it's calcium carbonate or calcium hydroxyapatite, which is what you have in the body, uh, to be deposited as little mineral crystals. Uh, and so if you look at it under an electron microscope, yes, you've got little calcium crystals. Uh, now, that means the body is capable of depositing calcium in places that it's not normally found in when you are well and truly healthy. So you can get what's called ectopic calcification. That means mineral deposits outside your bone and your teeth, which are meant to be hard. So you get little bits of hard stuff deposited 
and it can happen with old injuries or where uh, tissue has died but has not been broken down, so it's still there, it's dead tissue, and calcium just gets deposited within that dead tissue. So that's what's happened with these uh, stone babies, uh, and there are various examples of these uh, that have been found around the world. But um, but it can happen with uh, diseased tissue anywhere in the body. You get little, little deposits of calcium, and it's exactly the same stuff, so it's calcium mineral. Yeah. Sam, why don't you give us thank yous and questions and we'll take a break for the moment to uh, deal with what our listeners are thinking. All right then. Uh, right, let's do some thank yous. So we've got Stacey H coming in uh, with 499 US Buckaroos, a topic to make us feel war worm and fuzzy. Worm and fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> worm and fuzzy. Uh, nice play on words there. Uh, Lynn Colson has come in with 25 New Zealand Buckaroos. Thank you so much, Lynn. Uh, and I am Matt as well, coming in with four US buckaroos, a pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. As usual, thank you very much, I am Matt. And Doki as well, coming in with 199 US buckaroos, a thumbs up. Thank you so much, Doki. Uh, and also as well, a super sticker of 99 US centaroos, smiling face with sunglasses. Uh, Neil has come in with 10 British buckaroos. Great to see everyone. It's great to see everyone in the chat as well. <laughs> Um, we've also got uh, Sandy C coming in with five and a half New Zealand buckaroos. Pair character doing a classic mic drop. Uh, and Doki as well coming in uh, fast and furious uh, with uh, 149 US buckaroos, a hamburger. I could do with a snack right now. And uh, uh, Sandy C is again coming in with 11 New Zealand buckaroos, uh, real world fossils for the win. Uh, right, let's get into a question. Um, uh, this is an interesting question that comes in from Douglas. He asked the question, is the sardine stone mentioned in Revelation 4.3, King James Version, referring to a fossil fish? Joe, any comments? Um, I think sardine is the name of a is a mineral i think i think the closest interpretation is, is a type of ruby uh it was used in the jewish high priest's um breastplate um i don't think it's got anything to do with a fish i suspect that the etymology has got to do with a, a much later naming of it uh rather than a than a hebrew naming of a fish but i think that the sardine is a is a type of mineral i'm pretty sure it's in the same grouping as rubies um but it was certainly used on the high priest's uh, chest so if you know about your um uh, connections between the tabernacle and between the um high priest and what he was wearing and the meaning of the stones and the new heavens and the new earth and everything like that uh, it's a fascinating study to go through but i'm pretty sure it's it's either ruby or like a um carnelian type of type of mineral yeah. you'll find that it's more commonly today called sard s-a-r-d yeah uh, so yeah. look up that and run with that you'll soon find it's got nothing to do with those smelly awful oily fish that come out of tins that really turned me off eating seafood when I was a kid. I think that the name, I think if I remember correctly, it's like um, the root of it is um, like sardian or something like that, which is red, basically. Um, so it's a reference to the colour, if nothing else. Yeah, is it related to a place called Sardis? 
Oh, apparently, according to Douglas, it wasn't actually supposed to be a serious question. Oh, uh, right. never mind. <laughs> um, okay, uh, we'll move on then. Uh, <laughs> very seriously. <laughs> you, see, yeah, you, see, we'll you see, we'll answer anything, guys. We will. Sorry, Dad. Um, and uh, Doki is coming with this question here. Uh, question, is it curious to you that museums like Hawaii or Hawaii have lava sample exhibits with exact dates since the 1800s next to a fossil exhibit that suggests millions of years. Well, I'm, I think I'm the only one that's been and collected in Hawaii, and I have plenty of examples of rock there that comes out with three or four dates um, using radioactive dating methods. Uh, the only fossils you find in those areas are volcanic fossils covered in volcanic ash or whatever, so the ones in museum are usually bought from other places. And it is an anomaly because those, uh, those rocks, uh, which we have plenty of specimens of, uh, each individual rock has multiple dates, right? And we know when they formed because volcanic rocks reset their, their radioactive clock when they're heated and melted. So you can't bring up an old rock and if it melts, then say it's an old rock when it comes out. Um, if it melts at all, it resets to zero, right? There, there's the key factor that's left out of most textbooks. So if it comes out and it shows 100 million years, it came out set when it, when it hardened, totally set wrongly, right? So it's got nothing to do with how old the rock is. It's got to do with what sort of setting it got as soon as it popped out. Joe, you got anything else to comment on that one or Glenn? I think so. Okay, Sam, next one. All right, then. Uh, we have another question coming in from Shogiwa. This is more of a technical question. Uh, what experiments would you recommend to test fossilization with silicon dioxide powder, one kilogram precipitated silica, 100% pure pharmaceutical grade? Sorry, it was all, it was all in capital, so I had to sort of emphasize uh. that. <laughs> Very good well, accent, Sam. <laughs> Anyone got any suggestions? Well, silicon dioxide is um, quartz, if I remember correctly, whereas calcite is more calcium carbonate or calcium in its in its own. Um, experiments to recommend fossilization. Well, what's Epsom salt? Is that a form of silicon dioxide? No, no, no. no that's magnesium. 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 That's right. Yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, school, school, school test experiment. Yeah, we, we have been trying for ages at Jurassic Arc to get a because we try to do kid chemistry at Jurassic mm -hmm. Arc so the kids can do it. We have not managed to succeed in making a low tech silicon dioxide powder precipitated silica um, uh, fossil yet. Sorry about that, but uh, we just simply haven't been able to do that. Um, you can actually, well, you used to be able to, before they banned them, I think they scared the terrorists are going to use them, used to be able to buy silica um, crystal sets uh, so you could actually make silicon dioxide grow as quartz, right? So I'm sure if you wanted to fudge that one up, you could get the quartz in the crystal set to grow into um, the fossil you had. But we thought that was cheating, so we tried to do it with the stuff you've suggested but we have been unable so far we will keep on trying mm -hmm. 
All right. right. Um, we've got uh, two more thank yous to do, and then we're all out of questions. So please do send some in. Yeah. Uh, Ducky Ducky Bible Club Super Sticker for 99 US centuries, 100 underlined twice. And Douglas, again, apologies. I didn't see if there was if it was a, a joke or not, but there we go. Uh, coming in with 149 British buckaroos, a hot dog with ketchup. Wonderful. Okay, well, our next section, we're going to move slightly away from the... Um, We've got a healthy stuff. We're going into, yeah. Mm. But it's actually got something to do with this fossil. This is a new fossil that we've just got. You see the lovely rolled up trilobite there? Beautiful evidence of rapid burial. But let me just see if I can get the uh, camera right into focus and see if it'll work. Hey, that's not too bad. Can you see the beautiful eyes? Now, we've dealt with trilobite eyes many, many times on creation research and creation conversations because they are a wonderful piece of evidence of design. It's a rather beautiful piece. And it is design where our topic is going to go next when it comes to, on, to our discussions about how do you make a worm or what do you need to make a worm or how would you possibly keep a worm alive. And um, so I believe, first of all, we're going to go over to Diane. Is that correct, John? No, no, no. Okay. You, you're going to go to Diane and myself. Oh, both. Over to you. And I'd better introduce this because it's to do with my week in hospital, which mm. Diane and I have talked quite a bit about. So thank you for those of you who prayed much for me because two weeks ago I got up early, I jumped out of bed to go out and get something in the kitchen, turn the coffee on, all of those things. And then I saw something on the floor, bent down, and stood back up and all of a sudden my world began to spin really dizzily. I had to lean against the wall, make my way back, get my colleague out of bed and say, I, I don't think we're going to dress a guy. You're going to have to take me to the hospital. I can't stop the world spinning. And uh, anyway, the reason I suggested hospital was that over the past three months or so, I've had uh, cardiac um, testing. The reason I had cardiac testing, you know, heart testing, is that last year in Australia, I got my one free medical test in 75 years. When you're 75, they give you a free medical test, all that tax paid, all that time spent working for the government, and I get one free medical test. I'm really, really grateful. But in this case, I really am, because they got a free ECG. And the doctor said, we're a bit worried about this little, well, everything down here is normal, but look at this that pops up every now and then. And he said, we're going to recommend that you actually go and see uh, a cardiac specialist. You can either go to the hospital, the public hospital, but it may be 13 to 18 months before you get in. You, you could be dead by then. So please go to our specialist. It'll cost you, but you'll get it done in, in a week or so's time. So I went and did that. And he too said, well, I've run this twice on this sophisticated machine. And look, there's this funny little erratic. And... Uh, to cut a long story short, he then strapped me up with a uh, heart monitor that I had to wear to bed. And he said to me, when we got the results back, basically the conversation was something like, do you ever faint? I said, no. Do you ever get dizzy? I said, no. He said, well, you should. And I said, why? He said, because you have a nerve going to one portion of your heart, which is wearing out. Old age, creation research. Worry about Joseph Hubbard, Diane Eager, etc. You're wearing out, son. And I thought at 76, that's that's a terrible thing to have happening. But anyway, he said, here's my advice. If you ever feel really dizzy, 
go straight to hospital. So that's why I took the, the recommendation and my friend and I went to the emergency ward in Redlands Hospital who, despite all the difficulties they had, actually were doing their best to care for patients. I spent 22 hours in the emergency ward uh, with a thin you know, blanket. It, it just was, I'll, I'll be honest, it wasn't Hotel Hilton or anything like that. But to get to the point here, basically what had happened was that I'd um, had a section where my heart had started to beat up to 50 times faster in one chamber than in the others. So the blood started to catch up. I ran out of blood in my brain. The world went dizzy. And then one bit of the blood flicked off and ended up in my brain a few seconds later, a few minutes later, and all of a sudden I was numb down this side. Now, my cardio guy was emphatic. You had the um, blood slow down first. That's your real issue. The, the little clot you had that went to your brain that gave you a minor stroke, that's a secondary issue. Now, what was interesting was that he said, here's the only treatment you need. I'll see you in six months. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful blessing. I mean, there's a second wonderful blessing. And I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but I believe that old statement, the world doesn't understand what prayer uh, has done, how great things prayer has wrought on this planet. You see, we've been praying for a helper for my wife, Anne, who's suffering from dementia. Three days before this event, she had turned up and my wife is in total safekeeping. I could go to hospital with no trouble whatsoever and uh, feel free and relaxed. At the same time, I'd share that with the hospital staff and they would just go, wow, amazing. But then one of them came in and said, well, the universe is looking after you. By the way, do you believe you can use every circumstance to give thanks and every circumstance to share the gospel? I said, no, the Lord is looking after me. And she almost took a step back. Paganism is rampant in our medical system that actually began with a full Christian basis with people like Florence Nightingale. But anyway, I'm back on deck. And one of the things I noticed that's going to bring Diane in, and then she'll move on to her little report about worms and things like that, then back to me. One of the things that I noticed is that I, I said in hospital to the doctors if they were listening because they were so busy, I said, it almost feels like my my whole body mechanism is shifting sideways to repair the bits that are not working properly. And I couldn't turn that into words at all that made too much sense in hospital. But when they let me out, um, I actually sort of began to notice this side of me is actually markedly hotter than this side. Now, I've had that before in sort of uh, medical issues where you get a a scratch or an infection, just in a tiny area, it heats up. Um, but I've never had the whole side of a body do that. So I got a couple of people who were visiting us. I said, come and feel my face. And is that hotter to you? And they said, yes, it is. In the mouth of two witnesses, the scripture says, there's no doubt about it. My body was hot on this side, all the way down. And I talked to Diane and I said, what it looks like to me is if God has pre-thought a world that would fall. And so I have in my health system a design that's even designed to cope with things that go wrong. Now, Diane's going to be talking about design and backup systems. 
like something goes wrong with the computer, you got a backup system. Something goes wrong with the jet, you've hopefully got a backup system in the aeroplane. Diane, take it from there. Uh, well, actually, my uh, examples are not from the human body, but they're uh, examples of forward planning and backup systems that we see in the world around us all the time. Now, in order to have forward planning and backup systems, that means there has to be a mind on the job. It's not going to happen by chance random processes and molecules just bashing into one another. So I have uh, a few examples. They're slightly quirky examples from our fact file that uh, where we archive our science reports and uh, keep a record of them. And so let's have a look at these. If we can put my slides up. Thanks, uh, Joseph. Uh, How are we going there? You're on the screen. You're ready to go. Yes. On the screen. Good to go. Excellent. Yes. Well, in, uh, in the biological world, we have lots and lots of these examples of forward planning and backup systems. There are so many. So here, here are a few quirky ones from, uh, from, from the uh, fact file. Uh, this is a report we wrote about uh, a while ago uh, relating to this little plant that's a very low growing plant with very short lived flowers. They, uh, they don't flower for very long and uh, it uh, rejoices in this wonderful name Evolvulus uh, or uh, sometimes Volvulus uh, depending on uh, where, where you come from. And it has a bit of a problem with rain because the flowers do not last very long and flowers exist to be pollinated. Now, this flower is pollinated by bees, but bees tend not to fly during the rainy season uh, on rainy days. And these flowers don't last very long. They last less than a day. So what happens when it rains? Well, they don't get pollinated. Ah, but in fact, they do get pollinated. So what's the solution to the rain problem for this uh, weird little short-lived low-growing flowers? It's actually a creature that you wouldn't think of. <laughs> it's a snail. Um, these flowers open in the morning. They last for about half a day. In dry weather, they're pollinated by bees. But in rainy weathers, it turns out that snails can actually carry their pollen when the bees are not active. Uh, so whoever thought that snails could have a good function? Um, I normally do not like snails going around my flowers because they tend to eat them up. So I shall, um, I shall still remove the snails from my petunias. They, snails love petunias. But for this little plant, the snails are not an enemy. So there you are. Snails do have some good function. After all, the Lord said that uh, when he finished the world, everything was very good. Even snails were very good. Uh, but there was an interesting comment in the, um, the source that we had for this story from uh, one of our uh, scientific sources, which is a, a blog about botany called Botany One. And the author who wrote the article about this particular plant said continuity of pollination, in other words, being able to be pollinized pollinated by two different things when one, one is um, absent. Continuity of pollination, regardless of the weather, 
That's a smart move on the plant's part. Now, hang on, who's being smart here? Do you think the plant thought that up? Do you think the snail did? No, someone outside this whole system designed the plant, designed the snail, and it works. Now, here's another example from uh, out in the real world. Um, do you like to go walking in the forest during the autumn and you have all of these fallen leaves? Uh, I, I grew up in a temperate climate. I still live in a temperate climate. We do have temperate climate areas in Australia and you can go walking in the forest of uh, deciduous trees and you can scrunch your way through the autumn leaves. I, I really like that. But, of course, the autumn leaves are, are not just there for... Uh, uh, for us to play with. The uh, autumn leaves need to be recycled, otherwise they will just build up and they'll sit there on the ground. So what is it that uh, recycles the autumn leaves? Uh, well, certain fungi and various little invertebrates will do that, but the most important uh, contributor to recycling the autumn leaves back into the soil, they make uh, recycling of nutrients, are these creatures, and we'll talk a little bit more about these later on, worms. Now, earthworms will um, chew up uh, fallen leaves, fallen leaf litter, fallen uh, organic matter wonderfully well and uh, recycle the nutrients into the soil so that the trees and the plants can continue to grow. However, there is a bit of a problem with autumn leaves, uh, they contain substances called polyphenols and these can interfere with the digestive enzymes. So the, uh, it's very hard for this leaf matter, matter to, uh, to be digested when you have high amounts of these polyphenols which are quite concentrated in the autumn leaves. However, the worms have a unique solution to that. They have unique chemicals which are not found uh, in other creatures called drylodefensins. They're uh, a, a sort of um, organic molecule which counteract the effects of the polyphenols on the digestive system. So the earthworms can munch their way through autumn leaves and their digestion remains intact. Now, this is important um, as uh, one of the science sources that we got this from. Uh, without drylodefensins, fallen leaves would remain on the surface of the ground for a very long time, building up into a thick layer. Our countryside would be unrecognisable, right? We'd be buried in uh, piles of autumn leaves, and the whole system of carbon cycling would be disrupted. So we need to think of design in biology beyond the individual creatures and look at the whole ecosystems. Um, of how things interact with one another. That's one of the things we're particularly interested in creation research, um, not only individual design within in individual uh, living organisms, that's fascinating enough, but then you've also got the interaction between completely different organisms which have no relationship to one another that can be put into any evolutionary tree. No, this is a system that's been built by someone outside. And uh, as usual, the evolutionists insist this is an example of adaptation. We have identified the key mechanism for adaptation to a dietary challenge 
in an animal group that has a major role in organic matter recycling in soils worldwide. No, this is not adaptation. This is design. After all, how many worms would, uh, without these drylodefensins, would die of um, polyphenols uh, interfering with their digestive system if they didn't already had it? There had to be forward planning in this. So this is not adaptation. Adaptation is a real process. It is the ability to cope with changes in the environment, but it will not produce a substance that the worm did not already have. For that, you need the genetics which control the biochemical pathway in order to make them. So worms plus autumn leaves is actually a design system made by an intelligent designer, an intelligent creator outside the entire system who made the trees and the leaves and the worms. So uh, let's just uh, move away from the land and go into the sea. Now, John, I know that you like to go fishing. Do you ever mm -hmm. find any starfish on the rocks? Have you ever trodden on any and uh, and, and you get I've even caught on out. the end of my fishing line as they try to pull off a bit of crab or something like that. So, yes, I've seen them mm. on the ground. I've trod on them. Uh, I've seen them ripped up by angry fishermen because they're raiding crab nets and that, but they just remultiply from a pit portion. So there's lots of them around here. Yes, yes, there's plenty of them. Now, when they're stranded on the rocks like that um, during low tide, if you stand on one, you, you sometimes get uh, sort of water squirting out of them. Have you ever noticed that? Yes, uh, certainly have. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, well, um, it's uh, interesting um, that uh, starfish uh, live in the sea, of course, under the water. And when they are underwater, they move about on little tube feet. Uh, uh, they're, they're tiny little tube feet. They're... Um, uh, and they don't work like uh, muscular feet in, in other sorts of creatures. So when they're underwater, they're quite mobile, uh, but we normally only see them when they're still. Uh, however, there is a problem if they live in the intertidal zone. What happens when the tide goes out? Well, they can get stranded high and dry and they can't move because of the way their, uh, their feet work, but they can't move. And so if they're stranded on rocks or sand like that during the period between tides, uh, they are in danger of overheating. Now, it's very interesting. If that happens, if they do get overheated, but not so much that they don't die, that they survive until the tide comes back in, they actually have a memory of that and they have a way of saying, all right, well, next time the tide comes in, I can cope with this. They literally keep their cool. So the next time the tide comes in, the starfish will absorb extra water. And what they're doing here is making use of what's called thermal inertia. It takes a lot of heat to raise the temperature of water. And so by absorbing extra water, they are able to cope with the heat the next time the tide goes out. And that prevents them from overheating. So what we've got here is a brilliant case of thermoregulation or regulation of uh, heat control. 
Now, you think about that. That can only work if there's some sort of sensing mechanism. In other words, they um, can measure the temperature in between the tide when they got overheated. And there is also a uh, preset system for coping with that increase. So the starfish recognises, yes, the temperature has gone up. I have to actually cope with this. So next time the tide comes in, it will absorb more water and make use of the thermal inertia. So who, who taught starfish thermoregulation? Um, again, it's not the starfish being smart any more than it's that little convolvulus plant being smart. It's someone outside the system who designed things to work well, both um, within themselves, right, in their own internal working and the way that they work with other creatures and with the environment in general. Uh, so if we can just come back to us now, uh, if anyone would like to uh, add... Uh, ask any more questions or add to that i'll probably take that on to the section on wormstar and then we'll have questions after that yes. so, Emma, so yeah. you can put my slides back up so i can fast forward to where the worms start okay. you need to go to your own slides john so you need to go down to yeah. your powerpoint and then bring them up yeah, that's right mm -hmm. okay so where are we joseph you can show yep. me while you wait oh, john no, I've there we are. That's mine. Now, all right, Joseph, you're going to have to re-instruct me. Memory's gone. Why is so it? Just start trying to try and click left and right and see if that does. Is that doing anything? No, it's not doing anything. Um, just yeah, just 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 press the. There, there we are. There we are. Okay, I'm going to skip this section here because we've dealt with this already, and bring it up to that one there, and then you can. Um, just hide me and bring um, uh, myself and Glenn on, please, if you wouldn't mind. Or bring the whole team up. That'll be good. Well, I uh, just get that back there and then bring this there and we're there. All right. So that's good. Now, Glenn, you've been sitting very quietly there holding a worm in your pocket, correct? Uh, well, not my pocket. Yeah. But, uh... yeah okay. Well, whatever. Um Obviously, the dog hasn't eaten it. The kids haven't played with it. Your wife's left you totally alone and gone to a different room. Uh, where did you get this worm from? From my yard. From your yard. Okay. What was it yeah. doing in your yard? I've got a compost pile. And so I've introduced the worms there. This is a Lumbricus terrestrius. Mm -hmm. It's a vertical boring worm. So it makes holes in the ground going vertically. And what, what, what does it do? Yes. I mean, even from primary school, elementary school, you would have been taught that worms are useful in the garden. What do they do? So this type will go to the surface. It'll make a little hut on the top of the surface. It goes up, gets vegetation, and will bring it back down. There's other types of worms that just stay on the surface and just eat on the leaves turn them into organic matter. This one will go to the top, grab the organic matter, bring it back down so it, below ground. It's recycling, re-carbonizing the ground, etc. Um, That's right. Refertilizing, etc. Now, you were mentioning before that you have some big worms in Tennessee or the USA. What's the biggest earthworm you've got? 
this is this is the biggest one that that we have but there are others like i've got a friend who did research on worms and so he traveled to africa he's about six foot two and he was standing up reaching up as high as he could holding a worm that was still all the way down onto the ground because they can get to be 10 feet long yeah we've got those out here in australia so even if you don't have them in texas our worms are bigger still so so that's really good so okay what do you need to actually um get, get your worm you said you bought this worm into your garden what do you actually into my compost pile yeah so yes it wouldn't work if you just threw it on the ground is that what you're saying uh, no it would it would be uh you know it would be hunting for the organic matter to live off of okay so and it would be buried if it was in a desert would it work that I don't know enough about because it likes and needs the moisture. Right. Um, but, you know, I would be willing to bet there are many in the desert as well, but uh, probably not this <laughs> right here. Probably not above ground and probably not looking for compost too much, maybe underground near the springs. Now, the reason I did yes. that was that uh, our subject tonight deals with worms. They're commonly known, usually regarded as yuck, or boys stuff them down the back of their sister's T-shirt and run away. All sorts of uh, thoughts about worms, except for the one that we're going to talk about. Uh, Dawkins and the others think about the universe as a series of single, solitary, unrelated events. So hydrogen turned into people, step by step. Worms appeared, step by step, unrelated to anything else, just accidentally by chance. So if we can go back to my slides now, Sam, please. Wait till I see if I can do this here. Um, yeah, if you pull them up, pull them up in front of you first, John. There we are. Are we on? Yep. Good. We're good. Oops, sorry. I'm reminded of this Bible verse here because creation research, if it's known for anything, is its acceptance that the Bible is the authority, not the scientist. And Romans chapter yes. 1 verse 20 says the evidence is clear dawkins can see it attenborough in his nearly 100th birthday almost he can see it and so he's not telling you the truth since the creation of the world god's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by david attenborough richard dawkins the abc the bbc etc all things that have been made even his eternal power and godhead so no one's got any excuse. So if you've got theologians and you've got scientists saying they can't see it and the Bible saying you can see it, where is the problem? Okay, so here's the simple way that we deal with it in classrooms. This is a classroom lesson. What do you need to make a worm? There's a little plastic model there for fun. Simple illustration first. They've never had to make a worm, but they do use a toaster. And you can illustrate very simply in this lesson that nothing happens by itself. And in fact, nothing happens by chance. They get up in the morning, they grab a croissant, they grab a slice of bread, they put it in the toaster. But if the power is off, it doesn't work. But if you want your toaster to work, you not only need to make bread, you actually need to make the metal and you need to make the copper and you need to have a power generator. So the toast doesn't happen by itself. In fact, for the toast to work, you need to be able to grow grain. To grow grain, you need a crusher. To, grow, to, to make the crusher work, you need to add a bit of salt and sugar and yeast to make the bread. So nothing 
in the simple operation of making a slice of toast is a thing that happened by itself. And you know very well, no one step happened by chance. Miners, academics, electronics, etc. The same turns out to be true for the worm. No matter how emphatic the evolutionary textbook is, you can leave God out of all of this. There is our worm, Willie we'll call him. There's one of the burrows. Yes, that's one I dug down to try and find and have a good look at. There he is close up. Um, we have worms and they're very useful in our farming because most of them do the recycle bit here. Yes, in Australia, we have some of the surface scavengers, but most of them, the minute you dig them, they'll try to reburrow down into the soil, push their head in, um, and then try and pull their body after themselves. But we all know one thing, no vegetation, no worms, because they actually have to have vegetation to survive on, same as you do. But we use the worms to improve the fertility of the field and get better plants so that we can do better. Okay, if you've never seen worms mating, that's how they mate. They're, they are hermaphrodites, uh, they have both sexes, so there's no transgender argument amongst any worm I know. They were created with two sexes, so rule number one, God is entitled to make worms any sort of sex he wishes, and he's chosen to make them hermaphrodites. They mate going in opposite directions, and there's the result, worm eggs and they will hatch out. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you have never seen baby worms, but there are certain portions of the day and often usually early in the morning and at night when you can see millions of the things, okay? There's some of our bigger worms. That's one up at Mount Tambourine, many feet long. We have giant worms, even at Jurassic Ark, some that are nearly two feet long. There's one on a gum tree for scale. You see the ruler down the bottom there? We have big worms. So what do you need to make a worm? Because the theory of evolution says, given the materials in the universe, plus time, plus chance, plus energy, you end up with worms. Okay, it should be very obvious that if there's no soil there and there's no plants, it doesn't matter how many times you could accidentally evolve something that tried to be a worm, it simply wouldn't work. So you actually need the soil first or the worm first? The answer is the soil. Do you need the plants before or after the worm? You actually have to have the plants before the worms because the plants might grow without worms, but the worms won't grow without plants or soil. Now, when you start to trip around the place, there was an article asked, a question came up, are there any fossil worms? Let me take you to Kangaroo Island. That's why it's called Kangaroo Island. There's lots of these midget kangaroos down there. There's one of my favorite fishing spots. Yes, I'll take worms, put them on a hook, and go and catch a fish. No worm, no fish. Ah, yes, I, I wasn't kidding. Look at that. Well, there's some lovely, um, beautiful fish to be caught down there. But on the land, there's a fossil worm. Now, one thing you know about worms is they're soft-bodied. So that creature was buried whole. It was wrapping around. Um, this was a soft worm, no hard parts, and it was preserved totally. It didn't take a long time. I mean, a worm gets on a path, someone stands on it, you've got no worm. A worm comes to the surface, the birds get it. You've got no worm. You want a fossil worm? You have to be talking speed. 
You try making slow fossils, you end up with no fossils. Present day worm on the left, fossil worm on the right. So thank you for the person who wrote in the question box, do we have petrified worms? We certainly have fossilized worms. Look at them. All of these are in our collection. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, since these are regarded as on the boundary of the Precambrian, that, that's one of the ones right down the supposed bottom of the geologic column. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of years old in David Attenborough's and Richard Dawkins' and National Geographic scheme. Worms have produced worms ever since they've been on the planet. <clears throat> and the evidence is undeniable. It's rock solid. But what do you need to make that worm? There's the simple answer. Earth, plants, air, water, bacteria, planets. Oh, sorry. Sorry, a bit too fast for me. I'm sure of that. But let's stop. With no earth, that was the right size. If it was too big, you have a worm that will squash. With an earth that's too small, even the worms will float away due to lack of gravity. So you have to have an earth, a planet, that's just the right size. Otherwise, the plants would float away or they'd squash with the gravity as well. But to have the plants, you have to have water. And all of this, well, sorry, you can't just have plants, then water afterwards. You have to have the water first or the plants won't even be there. And the same with the bacteria. Do you realize that worms eat things because they've already got bacteria in their guts? So the whole system is absolutely important that you either have all of it or you end up having nothing. Can I make that point again? And if you sit down and think about it, even if I make a boomerang, if there's no air, the boomerang doesn't work. If the planet's gravity is too great, the boomerang doesn't work. Are you catching on? The concept that things can happen step by step is a stupid concept. It's the concept of a fool. That's why the scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's why the scripture says, well, all of you understood what I just said. None of you can think of any counter argument to it because I have racked my brain. Uh, you see, I used to be an evolutionist. I wasn't brought up believing the Bible. We didn't go to church. I'd never read Romans 1.20. But the reality is, when you look at the evidence, you can see the handiwork, the signature of the almighty God, the person Diane was talking about, the one who thought about using snails. Why would you need snails in a world that didn't have uh, rain? Well, the world had a mist every day. There would be a portion of that day where the bees didn't want to be plowing through the water drops <laughs> on the plants, but the snails were having a wonderful time. Since the creation of the world, <clears throat> God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. They're understood by all things <clears throat> that have been made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that all of you are listening, you have no excuse. Make sure you receive Christ as Lord and Saviour now. Joe, we'll go back to you, have our last time of questions, and uh, take it from there. And you and I are going to hang around and have a bit of a chat. muted that's why there we go thank you very much everybody uh for everything that they shared today thank you for everybody who's been engaging in the chat as well we are coming up to our two hour mark we have about five minutes or so a reminder of what i'm doing tomorrow first and foremost 
which is we have our Tights and Mites field trip starting here at the Creation Research Centre and going into Wales. So if you can make it, grab tickets now. There are still some places left, uh, or you can just turn up for the 10.30 start tomorrow morning at the Creation Research Centre, and you can come and join us. But uh, get in touch now. A second reminder from me, and on behalf of myself and Glenn, uh, there we have a nice graphic. Uh, creation research is indeed coming to the USA in the form of myself. Um, so get in touch with Glenn Wilson. You can see his details down there. Um, come and watch this on catch up and take a screenshot. Email us. Get in touch because we're coming from June until uh, second week of July. So June 2nd until July the 11th, I will be there. My wife will be over for a brief stint as well. But we've got opportunities for ministry. We're doing some filming. We are doing some interviews. There's a pretty exciting program coming together. So get in touch now if you want to know the details or you want to book your own field trips, ministry trips, uh, church visits, group visits, whatever. There's the details. All right, um, Sam, I think we've got about enough time. Oh. Thank you. Yes, John. Most of what fossil fights from the UK, from Australia, from Tasmania. Uh, sorry, Tasmania is in Australia. Sorry about that, Craig. And uh, we'd encourage you pick that up. And Sam, tell them again where they can download Darwin on the rocks and see those limestone uh, trees all for themselves. Uh, yeah, you can uh, you can watch that on uh, creationresearchlive.com, I believe. Is it .com? Okay, creationresearchlive.com. Yeah, creation yeah, yeah, it is. That's it, yeah. Just a, a quick note, by the way, guys. What's interesting today, we've dealt with calcification, carbonization, petrification, all the rest, right? And we've referenced heavily the tides, mites, and fossil fights, right? Uh, which is the first in the, uh, I think it's the Investigate series, we're calling it, isn't it, John? Something like that. Um, but there's. Um, a really great research book, right? And uh, something which me and John and Diane have been talking about for a long while and pray that you, uh, the Lord gives us the opportunity to do this. We've been discussing a second book in the series, uh, which is about the second topic we dealt with today, which is design. Um, and we uh, are, are sort of have come up with the preliminary title of, um, so we've got tides, mites and fossil fights. I thought that uh, Flowers, fungus, and fossil fanatics would be a, uh, a good title <laughs> because you'll find that things like fungus uh, show incredible evidence of design, remarkable ev evidence of design uh, in some of the uh, in some of the details that they have. Flowers, Diane's loves the orchids and the design that's there, and we even mentioned earlier the fossils with design like the trilobite eyes as well. So um, there's plenty of uh, content for a design-based uh, investigate series. So do uh, continue to support us so we can bring out all this kind of stuff. Sam, have we got any final questions before we wrap up? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, so we have a quick one from Neil. Do worms get petrified? Well, we saw some of them earlier. Yeah. There <laughs> we go. worms. Uh, we've also got some thank yous as well to give out really quickly. Uh, Dougie's coming in with 99 US Centaurusa upside down face. Okay. Uh, and uh, George Bond has come in with a super chat of 20 Aussie buckaroos. How does secular geology explain a homogeneous limestone layer extending from North America to Asia, Middle East, Europe through to England? 
Well, the answer is they don't. Yeah. Simple um, as that. And in fact, he was actually one of the first people to pick up on this issue was Professor Derek Ager, who basically pointed out that he got taken to Turkey, where he found what was essentially the White Cliffs of Dover, but in Turkey. And he said, hang on a minute, what are they doing here? And he pointed out that you can actually trace the chalk. You can start in the White Cliffs of Dover, the famous White Cliffs of Dover chalk. If you travel to the east, you go to Normandy, and you can trace them all through Germany. You can trace them through Turkey, down through Asia, and they turn up on the west coast of Australia. If you start at the White Cliffs of Dover and you go west, you can trace them all the way through the south coast, all the way through County Antrim in Ireland. You can trace them all the way over to the um, Austin Chalk, which is in Texas, uh, and it's the same chalk. It all sits on the same sandstone bed, uh, and it's all extremely thick, full of fossils uh, that have been buried very, very quickly and often showing evidence of um, flowing water as well. So it's really unexplainable other than a very large watery <laughs> catastrophe. And, uh, Joseph, just to add to that, it all sits on a greeny mile right across. So the, the colours are the, the same. Greenstone, yeah. And, yeah, the greenstone, yeah. Uh, right, okay. Uh, Steve uh, Honer. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, are you going to follow the recommendations of the greenies and eat insects instead of meat? Well, John the Baptist wasn't a greenie, but he did like grasshoppers uh, on uh, on honey. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with it. But what the greenies are doing is putting their pagan philosophy in, thinking that this will so save the planet, whereas the only sa salvation for the planet is through Christ, who sadly, despite the greenies, actually instructed us we were free to eat meat um, some 4,000 years ago after Noah's flood. And I'm jolly sure he's got a very good reason for that. So the greenies can take it up with him and he'll beat them in every debate that they have with him. Excellent. Well, it's probably time to uh, wrap things up now. We've hit the sort of two-hour mark, which is about our time to wrap up. But thank you all very much who did ask questions, and there'll be more uh, chance and opportunity to ask questions, not only next week, but also when we have our main uh, Q&A session in a few weeks' time. Yeah, thank you very much, Doki Doki. Just seen that up on the screen. Thanks, Sam. Um, we really do appreciate all the support and all the people who donate and support the programs, as well as the work the Creation Research does around the globe. Do get in touch. Remember, I'm coming to the States. Remember, we've got an open day coming up in Australia. Remember, we've got the newsletter coming out at some point in the future. So uh, do keep an eye out for all of these things, creationresearch.net, and you should find most of the links on there. Until next time, goodbye and God bless. Any last words from the team? Nope, worm Same is yours. Goodbye. Worm's a good one. Worm. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye and come back again. Catch you later, folks. See you next time.